Hi, I'm Susie McAvale. I live and work on Wurundjeri Wirriwong country in Nam, Melbourne, Australia. And working in education, I've noticed that in this COVID era, young people are not coping with life as well as they used to. But what I've come to understand is these symptoms are signs of a bigger picture and that some of us adults, we also need some help with how to deal with life changes, particularly when it comes to understanding ourselves and relating to one another and our kids. The Let's Check In podcast shares stories and strategies of real people who commit to paving positive ways forward through uncertainty. We talk about the things that you didn't learn at school, that you wish someone had prepared you for. So, let's check in. Hi, and welcome to the very first episode of the Let's Check In podcast. This is a space for you and I to hear from people who have faced uncertainty head on. You know those times when you're waiting for the call from the doctor's surgery, or you have that dream job opportunity, but you just don't know how you'll find the courage to step up. Maybe getting ready to run your first marathon, or maybe right now, that marathon is all about getting out of bed and out the door each morning. Together, we'll hear from the experts with the knowledge about how to embrace vulnerability and how to build the courage to learn new ways of thinking to tackle our goals, and to know that it's okay if we don't always succeed. I do need to mention, as this is the very first episode, that the Let's Check In podcast is not a licensed mental health service and is not a substitute for professional mental health advice. But we will do our best to provide you with accurate and responsible evidence-based information along the way. If something does come up for you in this episode, or at any time in the future for that matter, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. For this first episode, I'm so honoured to introduce you to Dr Peter Ginn from the Future of Work Lab at the University of Melbourne. Now, if there was ever a time of uncertainty and change around work and workplaces, it's now. And so, I wonder, how can we reimagine work to serve our minds, mental health, and hip pockets. How has work changed? And really, where is it heading? Peter, welcome. It is such a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thank you. It's uh, great to be with you today, Susie. Now tell me, is this the biggest time of change that we've faced as a society since the Industrial Revolution? Or am I maybe exaggerating a little bit there? It's an interesting question because I think every generation has probably felt subjectively like they're experiencing the biggest change um, ever at the fastest rate. I think if you asked a futurist that question, they probably give you a complicated answer that says uh, that said something like, uh, yes, um, if you observe Moore's rate of change, then possibly we could say that technology is developing at a faster rate than ever before, blah, 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 blah. And then you have the counter view that says, actually, no, every generation feels this way about change. But the reality is that is a subjective experience and not necessarily one grounded in reality. My personal view is that it doesn't really matter whether it is 
the fastest rate of change um, and uncertainty that we're experiencing. I think our subjective experience of it is very important, however, and I think that we are living in a time where we're kind of vacillating between feelings of existential angst and nihilism, you know, so what is our purpose? What is my purpose uh, today? What can I do with my life? And what is the point of it? Um, because we are now facing a time, extreme inequity in society. So although you will hear people tell you that society is, has never been more equal, I think we're moving to a period where we're actually seeing from years of prosperity, certainly in developed worlds and developing nations, a period at which that the, the difference between the haves and the haves nots is absolutely uh, accelerating. And then you have that sense that we are also living beyond our resources in the world. So I think feel from a sustainability perspective, particularly a lot of young people are feeling like, well, are we actually going to have a world that is worth living in? So what is the point in contemplating some of the big questions if we aren't going to have uh, a meaningful, be able to have a meaningful existence because the earth is not going to be able to, uh, to actually support us? Um, so I think if you put all of those things in a mix with our feelings about declining trust, in uh, bureaucracies, in institutions, in our workplaces, in each other um, because of what we experience now through social media and the 24-hour news cycle. These are questions that really, or experiences that really compound this feeling of what's the point and what is the purpose. Um, so I think that is something that feels quite different to me. I mean, I remember the kind of the first time I really experienced that existential angst, I think, was when I was a child and I'm, I'm young enough to old enough to remember the Cold War and um, that feeling that we were, we were going to there was going to be a nuclear war. And that was in the early 80s and that was you know Russia versus versus America and I remember going to bed on New Year's Eve and thinking, you know, is there going to be a, a world to wake up to? And I, was, I think I was only eight or something at the time, which probably gives you an insight into my own mindset. But I think I wasn't the only one experiencing this, this feeling at that time. But what feels different to that was, you know, at that time that was nation pitted against nation. And I think now we feel, although we've become more globalized as a world, we feel more isolated from each other. So there's not necessarily a strong sense of a fabric holding us together. Um, so I think that is one of the things that, uh, you know, creates this sense of angst, uncertainty for us all. I think it's really interesting, isn't it, when we talk about that sense of purpose um, and we look to work and how that um, really contributing to our overall well-being as human beings. And you kind of touched on that just then. What, what do you think it takes for work to be truly purposeful and to contribute purposely 
to our own well-being? I think that's a really hard question to answer because I think we all derive purpose from and meaning from different things in our life. And some of us have a very strong work identity. You know, we are very driven by the work that we do. And here I'm talking about work as in paid labor. There's a lot of other work that we do that is unpaid. And for a lot of people, that is where their sense of meaning and purpose comes from. And the way we pay some things and don't pay for other things is really based on a whole host of cultural um, and societal factors. You know, we value childcare in a very different way um, than we value financiers. You know, it is a cultural construction. So I guess I'd like to make that point first. You know, I can speak personally, I guess. This is, I can't speak globally about how people divine purpose, if you like. But for myself, um, as I kind of, you know, get to the later stages of my career, I've always been somebody who has found my purpose through exploration and autonomy, uh, the need to sit apart from or alongside rather than be immersed in um, something. So always more as an observer of things. Um, rather than somebody who wants to be a leader in a particular field. I'm much more interested in being someone who can reflect on what is happening around me, absorb that information and put something back into the world that has a creative force and a creative energy. Um, so for me, curiosity and ability to have a degree of autonomy over my own life and decision-making is what drives me. And the forum in which I do that is really irrelevant, you know, in many ways. So I started my career as a performer. I couldn't think of anything worse now than getting into a theatre and being on stage. You know, that is not where I see myself. Um, although I do occasionally do some spoken word uh, for, for shits and giggles, as the kids say. You know, that part of my life taught me so much about how to be with people in a very particular way, how to, the importance of rehearsal, you know, what we actually often see as a final product takes so much time, so much energy, so much happening behind the scenes. And that really gave me an education into how to bring all of those components into the next phase of my life. So, you know, when I teach, I think about what is the room going to be like? How am I going to project my voice in this room? How am I going to capture people's attention in this space? I do vocal warm-up so that I'm making sure that I'm articulating properly. You know, those are things that most academics don't think about when they're going into a room to teach, right? So that sense of understanding that every step you take has a particular purpose in your life um, and is going to kind of keep unfolding for you is really what helps keep me going. You know, I'm a classic slashy, I suppose. You know, I'm this, I've done this, I've done that, I've done the other. Um, I'm very fearful of committing and identifying with one particular role. It's just never been my thing. And I'm very fortunate that I now live in a time that that is okay. You know, everybody has multiple identities and worker identities. And I think for many of us, particularly my generation of Gen Xs, 
and you know those who have come before me um, in terms of boomers, etc. That is quite conf- can can be quite confronting, you know, um, because we initially thought that our purpose was derived from getting a salaried job, um, that traditional income, creating a family in a very specific way, um, and. Over the years, those things have been shown to really be also be constructions um, of very particular individuals who walk in the world in a very mainstream way. Um, and now we're starting to see all of those different identities emerge and different constructions of family, different constructions of work. Um, and it's not that the others have disappeared. It's just that they don't necessarily have the same prominence and salience as they once did. Peter, we're going to move a little bit to the space of um, your your research. And you've done some extensive research in the space of migration to regional areas, which seems really topical in in this COVID era that we're living in. What does it mean when workers are moving to regional areas? Do you really believe that we're, we're going to become happier as a result? It, it reminds me of that saying, you know, wherever you go, there you are, right? So we make choices in life, yeah, to derive happiness, to find meaning. Um, is moving to a regional area going to bring you happiness? Maybe. But if you move to that regional area and uh, you can't find a job or you can't find childcare, or you don't actually have a means through which you can create social connection with people, um, then the idea that you're going to be happy there is probably uh, inaccurate. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about the move to the regions that we saw heightened during the pandemic, and this was something that was happening well before the pandemic, we were seeing uh, a net inflow to regional areas of Australia. So people were moving um, pre prior. We just saw an escalation of that move uh, to the regions. And a lot of that was driven by lifestyle. It was an opportunity that people saw to actually make a significant change that most people had already been thinking about beforehand. So I think, you know, it's three quarters of the people that we surveyed in our research, already wanted to move to the regions and saw this as an opportunity because the pandemic and the technology that enabled people to work remotely meant that they could make those choices for themselves. But then it's interesting, done a number of interviews with people who have moved, and most of them are very happy with their move, but what we often find over time is that there will be proportion of those individuals who will move back because things like not being able to form social connections or just not really forming community with with the region they've moved to. I mean, you've got to remember that most people who move don't actually have a relationship to the place that they've moved to. So I think our research showed it was something like 74% of people who moved to regional Victoria had no prior knowledge of the town or city that they were moving to. So that's a pretty big gamble. So, you know, you can imagine that if you're doing, making that kind of decision on a whim, 
um, or on an idea of what that experience might be, you might be surprised about what the outcome is if you can't forward connections. And I think this is one of the interesting things about working remotely is if you have uh, a high portion of what we call internal migrants moving to regional areas and they are still working remotely for a city-based role, say, for instance, they might be commuting two to three days per week, they're not necessarily going to automatically be forging relationships with local people unless they're doing it through activities like uh, with, with schools, with their school, uh, school children, um, or through faith-based activities or things like land, click, land care. Um, but what we often find is that people who have made these moves are so busy just trying to make it work, they don't really necessarily have the time to forge connection with those local communities. You still want to make connections with people, right? And if you're not in a position where you can do that um, because of the lifestyle you're leading, you're still doing commuting, you're still trying to navigate how to do the pickups and the drop, then the odds are that you're probably going to be craving the support networks and those established relationships that you already had in the city. So we will see people move back, but a lot of that will just be dependent on, you know, whether people are able to continue to work remotely, whether they transfer into local employment. One of the things that I've been exploring is whether people then make that transition into local employment um, in the regions. And what you find is often in order to do that, people need to accept they're going to be paid less. So if they can still work remotely for a city-based employer or for themselves and earn the same amount of money or more money, why would they transition into local employment? How do regions themselves benefit from having these individuals in their communities? other than, you know, through incidental expenditure, kind of economic um, advantages of having people um, moving to those areas. But there's also the displacement of the local communities that occurs at that time, right? So we've heard lots and lots of stories of locals having to move to adjacent towns because they can't any longer afford to live in those communities that they grew up in. So your local fish and chip worker, shop worker can't actually... Um, afford to live in the town they grew up in because the demand for housing is so high. That's a kind of complicated answer. I do have a funny little anecdote which does remind me about this. It brings me back to the question of happiness in regional areas. A friend of mine lives in Yay and she lived there for, you know, maybe 15 years or so. And um, she works in uh, environmental education with young people. And so she had known this house existed in Yay, which had this incredible Fajoa tree, and she had previously taken Fajoas from that tree and, you know, taken it to the school groups and they used it as part of their work that they were doing. And so she went back to this house uh, to actually see if the Fajoa tree was still there. And she knocked on the door uh, and there was no answer. And she noticed there were quite a few cameras on the house that weren't there previously. And she didn't think any of it. She thought she'll come back later in the day. 
Um, all she wanted to do was just, you know, see if the geometry was still there and if she could take some cuttings for her students. And so she came back later in the day, knocked again, and then there was still no answer. Later that night, she gets um, contacted by some friends of hers because she's kind of scrolling through Facebook. And she she realises that her face through the security camera has been photographed with the question, does anyone know who this person is? She came knocking twice at my door. And my friend was like, oh my God, you know, it's like this crime stoppers kind of moment, right? But you can, <laughs> you can kind of see it happening, right? So you've got this, you know, probably maybe out of suburban or suburban um, people who, or even inner city people who've moved to the country, they've got a particular idea and safety really drives a lot of our behaviours, right? So the need to feel safe. So they've kind of gone to this place where they think that they'll feel relatively safe. They've hooked up their security cameras. And as my friend said to me, no one even locks their doors in yet. You know, so you get these kind of very different ideas um, about what it is that kind of, you know, makes us feel safe and happy, right? Kind of clashing uh, when you bring these very different modes of being in the world, you know, city in an urban area or suburban area into a rural regional area. Um, I thought that was a really interesting kind of clash of cultures, you know. That is fantastic. Those two elements of safety and trust, like it's, it's you can really see in that example, those two worlds coming together. This is actually so interesting that you bring this up. I personally have just, well, my, myself and my partner, we did the sea change myself about a year ago. He had been there about four to five years prior. And so for me, I have navigated this entire transition um, and it was a really beautiful place during COVID. It was like a haven, right? It was the, the place to you know, do the exploring of the walks and get in touch with nature and, and go back to your foundations. And that was extraordinarily um, advantageous in that time. But yeah, as as you know, post the COVID experience or as we're living through it, I found myself, you know, commuting every day or four days a week in my full-time role in in the role that I'd, I'm choosing to be rather than being locally um, of all the factors as to what you just spoke about. You know, we talk about it takes a village to raise a child, but I think it's also it takes a village to raise a human being as a whole person. And this element of the social um, and where we where we, yeah, I guess get our, um, as adults, how we connect with other people um, and how we see, feel seen and heard and understood and connected is just so important. And I can really understand those people who have moved back to the city because that's exactly what we've landed on in the last few weeks. Um, and can I say absolutely loving it? <laughs> Not that we don't have a special place for the sea, but um it's certainly so fantastic to be home and it's it's all that foundation that's already been laid, you know, that you speak about. Mm. And I think, you know, imagine for some people as well doing that commute and then going into an organisational system which they found they find they don't belong in or they find punitive or they just don't feel comfortable in any longer. And it's like you are 
so torn between worlds at that point because it's like, well, I've made these choices for a better life and now I'm committing an hour, an hour and a half, two hours to go to a job where I don't feel like I belong or I don't feel like I'm being nurtured or I feel like there is a pressure to be present even though I could do my job remotely. There's still a cultural norm of having to be actually physically present in the workplace. So I, I think that is going to be the next, you know, that is currently the, you know, one of the big challenges for both organizations and for employees to kind of navigate that. I think that relationship between the employer and the employee, you know, I feel like COVID, I'm sure you can pack this up with, with your data and your research, but in these recent years, you know, we've gone through this enormous change and how do organizations really stay in touch with these demands? and essentially future-proof their workforce talent. I think it's going to be really messy, to be honest, because I think there is so much that feels like it's collapsing around us. You know, the very notion of what an organisation is has morphed quite a lot uh, through the pandemic. You know, its tentacles have extended into our homes uh, in a way that it hasn't previously. And then it's kind of those tentacles have slightly retreated back. So we find some organizations really embracing uh, this new paradigm, if you like, and then others just clamping on because the fear of the lack of control, the lack of managerial control is too great. And it's like, we just want to consign the whole COVID thing to the past. But the thing is, we're all still living with the legacy of what happened with COVID. Some of us very strongly, you know, people who've experienced long COVID, for, for instance, or who lost people during COVID, um, you know, so there is that real kind of trauma that people are still experiencing. But then there's just the upheaval of knowing who you are um, during that period. You know, kind of we all had to kind of have a bit of a look at ourselves during that time, and some of it was probably not pretty. And maybe we thought we could make some changes to feel better about ourselves and improve our own life journey. And we haven't had the great, you know, resignation that, you know, we saw in the US where so many people change jobs and um, abandon their careers or what have you. We haven't seen it to, certainly to that degree. We've seen, I think, the latest results that I saw around the economics of job mobility is that we're actually seeing less movement um, in people in terms of the job changing. Um, and perhaps some of that is to do with the fear that COVID initiated in us all and what is happening to us in terms of our cost of living crisis that we're experiencing now. And there's a degree of fear about, okay, so I've got a stable income. Um, I don't love my job, but uh, this is an okay enough gig for me to kind of get through. Um, I just need to be able to prep for, to pay my mortgage, feed the kids. I think one of the other things for employers to think about, to really question why they are doing what they were doing with regards to their position around working from home or hybrid working, you know, are they prepared to actually look at 
what the organization is there to do, what its purpose is, and how it can support individuals uh, with their own needs um, and known varying needs that change over the life course. Are they willing to actually make some of those decisions to do what's best for their organization and best for their people? Or are they stuck in a very particular way of working? Because I think particularly for professional workers who have credentials, who have the ability to move around, they're going to be able to make choices about where they go, particularly in a, in a, in a skilled shortage climate that we're, like we're experiencing at the moment. So you'll see a lot of talent drain from organisations, I think, unless organisations are prepared to let go of these ideas about not wanting to set precedents. This is often something that we find when people who have, say, for instance, they have caring responsibilities may say, okay, can I start earlier because I need to finish earlier? Well, if we do that for you, we're going to have to do it for everyone. Well, so do it for everyone. This is not necessarily about treating people equally. It's about treating people fairly and with equity. I think there are people like myself, um, I manage a chronic health condition and the ability to work flexibly for me to work remotely is an absolute game changer. You know, if I had to spend an hour, an hour and a half getting ready in the morning, travel, um, and then be in an office, deal with all the sensory inputs, uh, that necessary to be in a social space, then come back, um, and travel home, do the defragging and then get ready to do all that again, five days a week, I couldn't work full time. There's just no way that I could do that. This is the case for many people with disabilities and the case for many people who have caring responsibilities. And, you know, these are the people who really generally were really supportive of remote working. Um, and in all satisfaction surveys, they really stood head and shoulders above other people who, for whom the traditional organization works. You know, it's very fine for your older white bloke who doesn't have any caring responsibilities to say, no, we're all coming back into the office because this is where it works best. Well, actually, this is where it worked best for you. It never worked well for me. And we saw it with people from different cultural backgrounds as well. The work that is required to sometimes be in those social spaces that other people don't even have to think about, it's tiring. It's exhausting. So people found relief in not actually having to be in those spaces. It's important for organizations to recognize that that was an important release valve for people to actually be still be able to do their work, still be able to manage their tasks, do things on time, but it just enabled them to do it in a way that fit into who they are and into their lifestyle needs. I don't see why organizations would not be amenable to being open to this going forwards. We have heard a lot of organizational speak around bringing the best version of yourself to work. Well, that is the best version of yourself, isn't it? somebody who can, you know, 
still do the things that you need to do in your life, still pick up the kids from school, still manage your health issues, and still be able to do your work and use the benefit of technology to do that. And I do have some sympathy for organisations and for managers because it can be more complex um, to do that work, but it can be done. Um, it just requires more thought, more training, and more intention in the way in the decisions that you make. So it's not that I'm not sympathetic. I just think that we have an opportunity to completely redefine work at the moment. I mean, part of what motivates the decision to bring people back into the workplace is this kind of sunk cost fallacy, right? So this idea that we have created these institutions. We've built these great edifices to uh, a culture. Um, so, for instance, you, you know, I work at University of Melbourne. So part of the experience of being a University of Melbourne employee is the history uh, and the culture that is embedded in that physical fabric, right? So that's part of the mystique, is selling that. That's part of the brand. And you continue to do part of the brand in terms of the way that we invest in new construction. And so if you're, you're pouring all of this money into physical premises, there's going to be a strong emphasis and desire to bring people back into that workplace. Um, because that is, you know, that is uh, where you're going to, your return on investment, if you like. And so I think for, for a lot of leaders, it's a tough call. It's like you're spending millions of dollars in these buildings and these edifices and they're lying dormant. That is a conundrum, right, uh, for an organization. But it's important to think about how we might approach utilization differently and how we actually construct culture in a more diffuse way that's not necessarily just about being physically present on site all of the time. Yeah, there's, a, there's some themes in what you're saying, Peter, themes of trust, um, that that element of willingness and or stuckness. Um, but to me, what strikes me is, uh, you know, the human element of the relationship between the employer and the employee and really being able to be agile and nimble and really living out that growth mindset that so many of our organisations and so many people like to think and believe they do. But this is this living out in action, right? And it's not easy to do, but um, it's what we're being called to do in this time of change. So I think that's really interesting folks that you make. Um, let's talk about young people for a moment. How are they coping with the challenge, that, I guess, the changing face of work? like remote working when they themselves may not have established you know the foundational workplace lessons that perhaps these older generations that you're just speaking about have really lived through i think the first important thing to say about young people is um they're not a homogenous group you know pre-pandemic there was always we had always had higher youth unemployment and there was always this kind of Cohort within that that were the hard to reach, right? So, you know, people from low socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, First Nations people, 
young people with disability. That was always a, a group that was had any seemingly intractable kind of issues around becoming uh, employed or gainfully employed. And so that really heightened over the course of the pandemic. And then we saw some of the halo effects of that for other young people who were perhaps graduating into work for the first time um, during the pandemic. I mean, it really affected on campus. We saw it really affect students and we saw it affect uh, particularly international students, a lot of whom had casual jobs, who uh, weren't covered by any of the support measures during that pandemic period. So we're kind of left really high and dry. Certainly international students had to kind of leave the country. Even though there was some support, um, it wasn't enough to kind of keep them here. I would say that, you know, in terms of transitioning into a workplace at the time of COVID, there are certain things that actually weren't that challenging for young people. You know, if you're already in employment, even if it was your first job, the move to using technologies um, such as Zoom, etc., was really not a challenge because we're talking about digital natives here. And so often the biggest challenge for them was probably educating their parents about how to use the technology. It wasn't an issue for them per se. Um, I think the bigger issue was around workplace etiquette and knowledge. Um, just those social capital elements of being in a workplace that you start to really take for granted as you, you know, mature and develop networks. You have developed networks already. You know how to do things. You've seen other people do them. It's very hard to watch other people do things over Zoom. You know, you can't sit there in an office space and just observe behaviors and have a sideways kind of conversation with someone about how to do X because you've just been asked to do X, but you have no idea what X actually is. Um, so you just pull someone aside and say, okay, how do we do this? Some of the conversations I've had with young people is just that absolute sense of floundering, not really knowing how to be an employee. And I think that's probably something that we didn't really understand um, as employers. And so we didn't do things necessarily very well, like setting young people up with mentors, you know, for instance, who they could just call on at any time to just ask questions, to allow themselves to, to feel stupid or, you know, have 10 minutes after a meeting for just people to hang back and say, hey, did anything in that meeting just not make sense for you? So... And there are very simple ways that we can do that kind of stuff. And often, you know, they're the things that I would do when I'm teaching as well. So like, you know, you just set up a half an hour when you're available for anyone who wants to just come in and ask you a question. And that way people, you know, feel comfortable to kind of show their ignorance, if you like. So I think that is probably one of the bigger challenges. But I guess from the people that I've spoken to who work with young people, um, or do a lot of research in this space, there's not necessarily a sense that some of that social capital doesn't translate digitally. So you can, there are other mechanisms that might come into play so that there isn't necessarily a loss. There is always going to be a need, I think, for 
us to work together as human beings to be, there's going to be different things that that brings. Um, and I think at the start of a career, it's going to be more important to build those in. But I guess in the conversations that I've had with young people, I'm just I'm generally in awe of them, to be honest. And I think about what I was like in those early 20s. I was an absolute tragic Gen X mess. And uh, yeah, so I I just listen to them talk and their um, the breadth of knowledge that they have, perhaps rather than the depth, but the breadth of knowledge is pretty astounding and their social awareness is incredible. And so I don't really take to this kind of notion of the snowflake. You know, it's not something that really resonates for me. You know, when I hear a young person kind of speak up about their anxiety and use words like being triggered, what have you. I can see how people roll their eyes and do all that kind of stuff. And I just think, well, good on you. <laughs> just good on you. You know, back in the day, if, you know, somebody touched me inappropriately, I wouldn't be bringing it up. I would just be, you know, thinking that's part of the gig. And I would be taking that anxiety home with me and not knowing what to do with it. And so, good on you for actually saying, no, that that's not okay. And I'm so grateful that we live in a space now where people have the freedom or feel the agency to actually, you know, speak about these things. And so I admire uh, young people, the ethic that they bring to work. The challenge for employers, I think, is that they often don't feel there's an allegiance to the firm any longer, right? So if the organization is is not aligned with where that young person believes themselves to be situated at ethically, morally, then it's a hard sell for an organization, right? It's getting more difficult for the likes of the, you know, big firms, like, you know, think about the, the big PWCs and the EYs who get this kind of graduate talent to actually sell what they're doing because our faith in those institutions is actually diminished. It's not going to be enough now to say, well, you can have a corporate social responsibility day where you go and clean graffiti off a wall of a building or you bond with a community on a day of the year. People want that stuff to be more integrated into the work that they're doing, particularly young people. They want to have a sense of meaning and purpose. And, you know, of course, for some young people, it's going to be about status and success. Um, it's going to be measured, you know, monetarily. That will always be there for a proportion of the population. But I think individuals now, young people coming into the workplace, are really looking for a greater alignment between, you know, what their values are and what the organization's values are. And they also have more alternatives now. You know, we're seeing a rise of that kind of solo entrepreneur, you know, the individual who makes their money, whether it's through TikTok or whether it's through some kind of digital asset that they've created. People are less reliant on large-scale institutions to create their own wealth. You know, on this topic of vulnerability, which you really clearly just spoke about, Tell us what you're uncertain about at the moment and how you're supporting yourself. Every day is a 
a day of uncertainty for, for me as I think it is for many people. You know, I, I've lived with this condition, which means that on any given day, I don't know how my cognition will be. I don't know how much energy I'll have in the bank. Um, so I've learnt after 11 years that I just need to take it as it comes. I don't know what kind of inspired this way of looking at the world, but I never viewed myself as the centre of all things. And I think that really helps. You know, it doesn't mean I have a low self-esteem. I think I have a healthy self-esteem. But I think in moments of uncertainty and when my head is just so full of the angst, I always imagine myself as a speck in a much bigger universe. And for me, that's a liberating way to think about myself. For some people, maybe that kind of puts them into a state of insignificance and, and furthers their existential anxiety. But for me, I don't hold too strongly onto any identity. Um, and I found that very useful because it means you can shapeshift. It means that you can regenerate. Um, and that is probably my way of dealing with uncertainty. At the core of it, I always believe I'm going to land on my feet. I don't know where that comes from. Uh, and maybe it's coming from an immigrant family as well. Uncertainty was kind of built into my genes. You know, her parents came here post-war with nothing and built themselves uh, up in that traditional kind of uh, immigrant story. But their way of kind of dealing with it was to minimize uncertainty, to do all the things, to work so hard to create all those foundations uh, for themselves and for their family. I guess the desire for us then as this next generation or first generation of, Australia, of Australians was to not necessarily take those risks because they'd done that for us. <laughs> they just wanted us to have jobs, uh, didn't matter what they were, um, have a home, didn't matter what it was, you know. So it was, it was that kind of way of looking at the world. And unfortunately for them, I was never really of that mindset. So um, <laughs> great disappointment. I think uncertainty is kind of built into the fabric of, of the way that I view my day. And um, it's the relationships that I have built around me that help support me through those kind of, I guess, more trying times in my life and the continual desire to just take risks and see what happens. So Peter, what's one actionable thing that you'd like people to take away from this conversation? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, I have to say, is the wise words of my accountant, um, who I don't really have a relationship with except once a year, but she was once on the phone to me and I was moaning about something or other and she said peter you know what i do what Nomda? and she said you know sometimes when i'm getting up in the morning i get into the office i just think do i have my knickers on are they clean and are they the right way around and if i've done that then that's enough that's good enough and i kind of feel like that's pretty good. That's pretty good life advice, right? That's excellent life advice. If you've got some clean knickers on that are on the right way, what do you want, really? And if that's your accountant giving you that advice, I say take it. 
Well, Dr. Pete, again, it has been an absolute pleasure having this conversation. Thank you so much for your time for this very first episode on the Check-In Podcast. And we really look forward to seeing and hearing more from you. Thanks so much. It was an absolute pleasure and I wish you well with the rest of the podcast. Thanks for checking in with me today. I'm your host, Susie McAvale. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and leave a review. If you'd like to find out more about the Let's Check In podcast, head to the website letscheckinpodcast.com where there's loads of information in the show notes. You can also follow us at Let's Check In Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and TikTok. This podcast is not a licensed mental health service and it is not a substitute for professional mental health advice. If something has come up for you in this episode, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. This podcast has been made with the help of Pod and Pen Productions.